Richard Watts with you here on the show today. Lots to talk about, as always, including season 2016 at the Malthouse Theatre, which was launched on Monday night. The company's new artistic director, Matthew Lutton, will be joining us uh, in about 15 minutes' time to talk about that program. At 9.30, it's our fortnightly Art Attack segment. Ace Wagstaff will be coming in to talk about a new exhibition on at ACCA, I do believe. At a little bit later on in the program, we're going to find out about the theatre production Tender Napalm being presented by a local independent company, TBC Theatre. We're also going to be talking to Adrian Truscott about her sometimes confronting but very funny show, Asking For It, a one-lady rape about comedy starring her pussy and little else, which is on for one night only this Friday at Howler in Brunswick. Uh, Adrian's then heading up to Brisbane for the Brisbane Festival, where she's uh, performing that show as part of the Theatre Republic uh, which is a, a focus on independent theatre from around the country and indeed around the world. Speaking of things that are going on around the world, we're going to be chatting with conductor, singer, pianist and composer Eric Dudley, who's one of the guests at the Bendigo International Exploratory Music Festival, which is happening this weekend in Oddly enough, Bendigo, as its name would suggest. Also on the visual arts front, Black Art White Walls, which is an exhibition on at the Beringer Gallery in Upway on until the 20th of September. Plus an event called All Ears that's on at uh, North Melbourne Town Hall, St Martin's Theatre. Uh, are putting on I Saw the Second One Hit and uh, director Claire Watson is coming in to talk about this show which is uh, another in a series of works St Martins are creating uh, work by young adults and children but created for adult audiences and this one exploring the impact of September 11 uh, and uh, when the planes hit the uh, the World Trade Centre but again told from the perspective of young people who I believe were born on that particular day. So all that and more on the show today. Cerise Howard won't be joining us this morning for our Fistful of Celluloid segment. She's rather flat out organising her own film festival, uh, the Czech and Slovak Film Festival of Australia, and we'll have more details about that as well. Three, triple, ah. Smart Arts, the program. Richard Watts is my name, talking about what's going on in the arts world. And one of the things that's going on is season launches. Lots of theatre companies are launching their seasons this week and next week. So uh, finding out what's in store for 2016. First cab off the rank, Melbourne's Malthouse Theatre. Their artistic director, Matt Lutton, joins me in the studio now. Matt, how are you? Really well. How are you? Very well. Very well, indeed. So your first season as artistic mm. director at the Malthouse house you have been acting in the role since march as artistic director yes. and then formally appointed in july given that you only were formally appointed in july i'm guessing uh, discussions around the 2016 were happening somewhat so earlier than that yeah no they were definitely happening in march when i was in the acting role and i mean it was yeah i mean that programming process is really uh, there's a huge number of pieces on the table that you're constantly negotiating and looking through so when i you know when marion was moving on and i was stepping up to the acting role there was a lot there that I could be looking at and had great freedom to sort of, you know, push everything off the table and start again or look at all these wonderful sort of treats there and start working.
working with them. Talk to us a little bit before we get into the details about what you selected for 2016. Talk to us about that process of how you create a season, because I'm sure for many people that's one of the fa- the, the fascinating but mysterious aspects of what an artistic director <laughs> actually does. Yeah, it's a it's a really long process and, and goes around in a lot of circles. Like I think it begins with a lot of listening. There's a lot of going out and meeting a lot of artists and hearing about the ideas that they have and their instincts. Uh, it's looking at the, the artists that are very you know already working at the company and the projects that they're looking at. A lot of times things we've got on, under commission from previous years and where they're up to. So you end up sort of by gathering a whole lot of material um, and then sort of looking at the dramaturgical links between it all and starting to see what you know what's the strength and the contrast if you start placing works next to each other. And I guess you really start to think about your audience then and what actually the offerings you want to bring, what type of audiences you want to invite in. That great thing where you have, like we have obviously two theatres often running simultaneously and trying to think of all the audiences that we want to clash together when you know when they're two different types of work uh, and then we go into the whole process of actually costing it and looking at how much that you know we can actually afford what we want to do inevitably we can't so then you start to negotiate and then it goes around in circles <laughs> this is one of the things i like about the the structures of, of theater companies and other organizations in the arts you have an artistic director whose idea it is whose well whose role it is is to dream and envision and think we'll do this and this and this and this and this and then you have a general manager or an executive producer or whoever who sits there and says we can't afford to do that how do we scale it down and it's that <laughs> that kind of balancing act between the two that then results in the season that uh, you launched at the Malthouse on Monday night. So Malthouse season 2016, 2015 season at the Malthouse was divided into a series of chapters mm. in which the works spoke to one another and explored particular themes. You haven't worked, thema- th- worked no. thematically. So what are the kind of um, the connections between works that you look for in a season? I mean, there's uh, there's certain sort of, um, I guess there's certain qualities that sort of underpin everything that we're doing at the Malthouse and that I, I am searching for. And those things are that the works have deep provocations, whether they're sort of political provocations or personal provocations, that the work is really inventive and sort of subversive and that it's sort of got collaboration in it, whether it's collaborating with different audiences or collaborating with different artists. Um, so that's sort of the foundation. But then I think next year's season, look, if you look through it all, there's a lot of sex and death all the way through it. I think they're the big pillars of theatre and that's there. But uh, in particular next year sort of uh, looks at revolution a lot through its work. It looks at uh, rites of passage and, and communities really. Now, it's bookended with productions by a couple of divas. Yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, opening with uh, Meow Meow's Little Mermaid. Mm. For anybody who's not seen Cabaret... Um, Cab- I'm going to call her a Cabaret Goddess because she Great. pretty much is. Um, yeah, Meow Meow is a force of nature and a fascinating Cabaret artist. And so, she's opening the season with a new show. And then the season is closing with Black Showgirls, created by an artist people may know from uh, her work on television, perhaps. Uh, but... Um, Sydney audiences would be more familiar with her, her work as well. Because uh, now, pronunciation of her name Nakia Louis. Nakia Louis, right? Yep. Okay. So, Nakia's work, um, as I said, uh, people may know her from uh, the uh, well. The ABC um, Black Comedy is sort of what her, you know, is really bringing her to the fore. But early in the year, Malthouse, she was um, also writing all the material for um, Black Cabaret. Yeah, and she's done a couple of um, theatre productions up in Sydney. At, 
Christian uh, yeah, Bell uh, at Belvoir, Kill yeah. the Messenger was sort of her great hit from last year. Yeah. So that they kind of was. Tell us about the choice to bookend the season with these women and their work, because that in itself is an interesting statement to make. Well, look, it's. I mean, again, like I was saying, they're both sort of stories of rites of passage, and they both use a lot of wit and satire and sort of subversion to tell their stories. Um, uh, the first one, Meow Meow's Little Mermaid, is, as the title suggests, Meow Meow sort of attacking that really macabre but fabulous story, The Little Mermaid that Hans Christian Andersen told. Um, so it is the story of, you know, a, a mermaid that, you know, slices her legs into, gives away her voice so that she, you know, and leaves her homeland uh, because of there's a prince on shore. And um, in this production, it's Hugh Sheridan who plays the prince. Um, but it's, of course, in the hands of Meow Meow, it's very un-Disney. Like, it's an absolute subversion of that. And she's sort of lining up this array of, you know, hymns from Titanic and sea shanties, but also Megan Washington's written new songs for us, Amanda Palmer's written a new song, Kate Miller-Heike's written a new song. So it's a big sort of sexy musical cabaret spectacle in that Meow Meow raucous, out-of-control way. But, of course, there's a hint of politics all the way underneath it. I think you can't... It's a story of migration and assimilation, but with, you know, that's out, you know, hilarious, hopefully. Great. Um, now, a uh, couple of the works in the season that instantly caught my eye, um, which were uh, a recreation, uh, a reinterpretation of Picnic at Hanging Rock, mm. which I'm really intrigued by, uh, a production of Glass Menagerie that's uh, coming down from Sydney, which got rave reviews in, in Sydney. Uh, and I think perhaps my favourite um, that I'm most, well, the, the work I'm most anticipating, um, a new production of Edward II, who uh, I've, I mean, I'm familiar with the, the, the Marlowe play, mainly because of Derek Jarman's magnificently queer interpretation of it. Mm. This is the, his, the, the story of an English English king who took a male lover, scandalised his court, uh, was overthrown and eventually murdered, allegedly with a, a red-hot poker being inserted yep. up his ass. Horrible way to go. Um, he may have actually just been smothered. We don't know the, the real facts. But talk to us uh, to begin with about Edward II and why this is in the, in the season. Uh, I mean, Edward II came out of wanting to look at these history plays and really look at these stories and these figures that have, you know, it's really complex, you know, personal addictions, really, but the way that they influence as an entire civic society. Um, and was, we we're also interested in making a queer work and placing a queer work in a very, very public figure, um, you know, particularly, I think, in this culture of, you know, gay marriage debates and sort of where that's going in Australia and around the world. But to make it also appear a piece that isn't about homosexuality directly. Like, this is a world where the production that Anthony Way is creating uh, uses the Marlowe story, uses the outline of it, but it's sort of shrunk down for five actors. The, Liz the Elizabethan language is pushed aside and it's completely in a contemporary language um, but sort of its world is a mixture it's a sort of fantasia of the 14th century and 2016 or 2015 so you know it, apps, people do deal with conflict through the violence of the 14th century it is still with with swords and bloodshed and bodies appearing floating down the river um, but at the same time the sort of sexuality of it the erotics of it and the psychology of it is absolutely today you know you can have a karaoke machine and a sword in the same play uh, I think Derek Jarman would have appreciated that yeah uh, picnic at hanging rock now based on Joan Lindsay's classic Australian novel, which many people are perhaps more familiar with the film and the, the pan pipes mm. and 
slow wafting of dresses as people disappear up into to hanging rock. But for this production, uh, Tom Wright is going back to Joan Lindsay's original novel. Yep. Um, and it's a work that is more focused on performance and voice rather than image. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Joan Lindsay's novel is sort of in, it's um, beautifully poetic, but it's also laid out sort of like a documentary in many ways. Like the novel has a lot of the letters, you know, from p- police reports in there. There's a lot of quoting. So it really is a sense of um, trying to capture the voices of these characters that disappeared in 1900. Uh, and I think also in theatre as opposed to film that the probably the, the horror that we need to conjure to tell this story of Picnic at Hanging Rock is best conjured in the audience's imagination. I think if we, you know, attempted to try and create a rock on stage that had the aura of, you know, this story and Picnic at Hanging Rock, we would inevitably fail. So we don't put the rock on there. We use language to really articulate that. So it's a piece for five female performers and they conjure everything in the novel. I'm intrigued. And uh, are you directing that one yourself? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, Glass Menagerie is a production directed by Eamon Flack, uh, which got rave reviews in Sydney mm. and uh, and Helpman Awards and, and critical acclaim and popular acclaim and all of these things. And it's great that it's uh, we're having the chance to see it in Melbourne because so often what happens interstate stays interstate. Yep. And unless you can afford, afford to fly around the country regularly to see work, you miss out on some really great theatre. Yeah. Absolutely. I think it's really important that the exchange between the cities is really strong. Um, and this is a production that's sort of radical in the way that it just opens up the emotional heart of the play. I think that's what Eamon Flack does as, as a director so successfully. And it's, in some ways, the production is really distinct in that it doesn't try to cosme- cosmetically relocate it to, to, you know, to today. It still keeps it as a piece that is set in the 1930s. And he really beautifully creates um, the Wingfield House on stage as if it's in a film studio and sort of surrounded by whole lot of cameras and as Tom or the sort of cipher for Tennessee Williams himself goes through the play it's as if he's recreating an old black and white film at the final days with his you know with his family so it's it's you know it's harrowing it's beautifully moving and um, I'm hoping it'll be like one of the big pumping hearts within the season next year now one of the other productions that I'm really intrigued by and I want to come to some of the new Australian work uh, I'll come back to some of the new Australian works uh, in a moment, but uh, the production, uh, the events, which mm. sounds like it's going to be quite a challenging piece of theatre in many ways. It's exploring the aftermath of a gun massacre okay. uh, and interrogating how and why these things happen from the perspective of a, of a female priest whose choir has been gunned down. It, uh, by no means an easy or comfortable night at the theatre. No, it's a real night of questioning. Like, it's really that uh, the female vicar figure who Catherine McClements plays is really questioning everyone around her about how such a, this massacre occurred and how she survived it. And there's a sense of survivor guilt, but also she manages to talk to the teen boy who did this and his sort of, sort of almost clearly articulated ideas of cultural protectionism and protecting his own people and why he lashed out in this way and the sort of idea of cultural purity and so so the piece doesn't shy away from the complexities of that at all but what's so fabulous about the writing is it asks there just as in the story there's a choir that asks there to be a community choir from melbourne on stage for every night so we'll be going out and finding a good 25 30 choirs that want to come into the malthouse theater and be a part of the show every night afresh it's a fantastic opportunity and a fantastic fusion between the different aspects of melbourne 
Yes. Well, I mean, this is part of what I'm hoping we can do next year is um, bring a whole lot of different communities into the building. And that means different artists, but also different audiences, different community groups. Um, and I think this is one of those works that needs to be, yeah, creates a great connection within the city. Another work that is creating an interesting connection is one that will be looking at connections between adults and young adults. And that's Gonzo, which is a, mm. a new work by St. Martin's. And I, I will actually have uh, St. Martin's artistic director, Claire Watson, on the show a little bit later on this morning to talk about uh i saw the second one hit um but gonzo is mm -hmm. a work looking at teenage boys and porn yeah now uh, yeah. i think a lot of people would already be going that's going to be kind of uncomfortable and kind of strange having yeah. teenage boys confessing kind of uh, uh well that, well, that's uh, the show is um it's being constructed at the moment it's based on a whole lot of research and interviews and it is probably you know six teenage boys talking about what they watch they'll probably show what they watch they're going to talk it through why they watch it who they watch it with and what the impact is um but the project is really exploring how they're the missing voice that we hear from teachers we hear from parents we hear from academics we hear from psychologists talking about the impact of pornography on you know our sort of sexual appetite and the way we're engaging with um sex and erotics in the world at the moment but uh we we very rarely if ever hear from the teenage boys they're themselves or teenagers themselves but this is specifically about boys and their relationship to porn so i think it will be a yeah be one to talk about it will be uh we can't go through everything in the program but i can't let you go matt without talking about uh a new work which is fusing the poetry of the late great dorothy porter dot to her friends um and musician tim finn now this isn't the first time by any means that dorothy porter's work has been put on stage your predecessor marion potts mm. uh, uh did some work there but this fusion of poetry and song, tell us a little bit about The Fiery Maze. Uh, this is a project that actually Tim and um, Dorothy met and started working on it in the early 90s. So it's a cycle of poems that Dorothy wrote. Again, this whole sex and death thing going through the season of uh, was, you know, a love affair in Melbourne over a hot summer and the entrance of The Fiery Maze that you go through in those obsessions from you know St Kilda to Brunswick. Um, and Tim set them all to music and it was sort of conceived as like a concept album. Uh, but the poems have never been published and uh, the songs have never been performed before or recorded. So this is their first outing. Uh, and w we went through a process of looking at should this be turned into a play, should this be a musical, should we add interludes between the songs? And quite quickly, um, with director Anne-Louise Sarks, we arrived at the conclusion that, no, the songs are so exquisite and powerful and speak for themselves that we're just going to perform it as a cycle of songs. So it's a very intimate experience. Tim Finn performs them himself with Abby Tucker in the Beckett Theatre. Sounds like it's going to be a must-see, like a lot of the program. It's a very, very strong program, Matt. Thanks, so Richard. I'm looking forward to uh, immersing myself in season 2016 at the Malthouse Theatre. Subscription packages are on sale now. For more information, you can go to malthousetheatre.com.au and individual tickets for individual shows will be on sale from next year, yeah, I'm guessing. next year. So keep your eye on the Malthouse Theatre website for more details if there's just one or two shows you want to see. Or become a subscriber and see a bunch of shows. And then there's also things that we haven't mentioned yet, such as a series of conversations and artist-curated events and uh, contributions by Ross Mueller and Henny Rayson and Daniel Schlusser and The Rabble and many others, but there's never enough time to talk about everything. Matt Lutton, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for having me. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Art. Art.
Artac is our fortnightly visual arts review segment where we look at what's going on around town. Ace Wagstaff flying solo this morning. Good morning, sir. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good indeed. It's, <laughs> I haven't seen you since Radiothon. I know. Whoa, so long ago now. Well, I mean, in theory, Radiothon <laughs> is kind of still on because you've got until 5pm on Wednesday the 23rd of September to uh, pay your pledge. So and please do. Please do indeed, because yep. it helps keep the station on air for the rest of the year. And big thanks to everybody who subscribed during Radiothon, particularly mm. uh, while uh, Ace and we're on air. cohort Ty Snaith. It's, I, I always love the Radiothon show. It's a nice way to kind of summarise. You get to go over your old notes just to, and really focus on what you've covered and, and how much you've gone and seen. And um, Yeah. Now, speaking of what you've gone, been seeing, you've been yes. off to uh, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art, ACCA, and yes. checking out an exhibition. Solo by... show. So, an artist called TV Moore. Tell us about TV Moore. TV Moore. Um, well, primarily, in this show anyway, a lot of video work. Um, but uh, just so you're not confused, he isn't a strictly a video artist, is a multidisciplinary artist, and TV isn't a isn't a um a stage name or a or an arts name it is it's the first two initials of his first two names thomas vernon um so yeah i've gone and seen this show and it's an amazing kind of um assemblage or perhaps museumological and educational show about technology today Uh, not that it kind of gathers um internet culture or the prime examples of internet culture but that it kind of distills them into these these new works and then um, presents them in such a way that both explains and kind of documents the current internet culture, or I guess digital culture that's happening at the moment. Uh, as soon as you enter the space, it's it's very different. I mean, Aka is is known for its large cavernous kind of white cube space, huge on the inside, just a, a behemoth. But um, the walls have been painted in these really bright block garish colours, so much so that in the main room you experience a sort of vertigo. Uh, the carpet is this really strong, bright red. The walls are yellow and there's these red fluoros up in the corner where floor meet, uh, where wall meets ceiling. So it's uh, it's quite a, a surreal experience. Sounds quite almost disconcerting. But It would be a great set for the new series of Season Peaks. <laughs> yeah. So, but appropriate given the, I guess, the pop culture narratives that mm. uh, Moore is exploring in his uh, video work. Absolutely, yeah. And like a lot of, I guess, acidic, aesthetic, <laughs> not acidic, aesthetic attributes of um, of kind of digit, uh, post-internet kind of image making, there's a lot of bright colours, a lot of colour blocking that reference kind of glitchy or or digital kind of um, image making, uh, and and this is represented really well, as I just said, in the architecture, and that for me is what really makes a space and what really makes these works stands out. Stand out is the settings that they're presented in. Uh, I will talk a little bit about one of the videos that kind of really grabbed me. It's one of the first ones as you walk in and you're presented in the first room with these two videos either side of each other in the room. One's called Vinish and it's from 2015. Uh, It's three video panels of this computer animated Vin Diesel character 
in nondescript white shirt, uh, grey track pants, uh, crying in one frame, as, as you've seen in the advertising, which is everywhere, which is fantastic. This is kind of second screen experience happens in the advertising at Flinders Street Station when you're walking past the, the video displays and there's Vin Diesel crying away and you wonder what video game is that? And then you realise it's for um, Acker, of course, for TV Moore's exhibition. Uh, so one frame is of him crying. Sorry to get sidetracked. <laughs> it's all good. One is of him sleepwalking. And the other is of him kind of looking somewhat bemused or surprised or maybe pouting in front of the camera. Uh, and it's this really curious um, kind of disconnect. You know, there's, it's, at one stage it's like a puppet, but on the other hand it's also so, so dead and unlifelike, doesn't even have the experiential connection of a video game, even though that's what it's replicating, this kind of avatar or second skin, because you're not connected to it or playing it or experiencing or knowing what's going to happen. It's kind of enacting without you, uh, which is quite surreal to see an avatar um, kind of enact without that kind of presence or interaction from the viewer. Uh, And the work across across from this work, kind of facing it, is a a work called Existence. and it reads much like a, a mysticism or a, a new wave kind of meditation video of, uh, you know, various relaxing scenes such as grand canyons and eagles soaring overhead and a fireplace uh, accompanied by little snippets of, of voiceover and text subtitled on the video that kind of explains ideas about torrenting and other, other aspects of internet culture, but also aspects about yourself, such as your own heart rate and the necessity it is to breathe and to sleep and to relax. So, Now, I was reading a review of uh, With Love and Squalor, uh, which spoke about the, I guess, the... The, the the layering of the works mm. uh, and the, the the contrasting of the layering. Um, the, the quote is that the cleverness is sometimes counterproductive. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I think and that's what I kind of um, uh, uh, alluded to, I guess, in the introduction of this show, is that it's not strictly documenting internet culture or, I guess, documenting the best of the internet, such as, you know, a YouTube top 10 video or... Um, you know, or a, or a best of reblog Tumblr site, but it's um, it's kind of taking elements of these things, uh, distilling why they're good, and making new work from them. So you will get these layered kind of works that suggest one thing and impose another thing, or suggest two things at the same time, which are contradictory. Um, in the last room, or I guess the first room, depending on which way you walk in, uh, there's a video of another avatar, the frat self of TV Moore, taking endless selfies. And the character goes through these mechanical emotions, one after another, kind of pouting in front of the camera, uh, f- feigning a smile, looking angry. And you see these emotions replicated both, uh, you know, as a third person's perspective, watching the figure carry out these these systematic movements completely absorbed in the screen of the phone, uh, completely oblivious to the outsider, to, to you, the viewer, watching him. And then you also see the view from the figure itself in this first person view, looking at the screen of the phone, seeing your reflection in the, in the front facing camera. And then also from the phone's perspective, so from the the view of the camera or the second eye. Uh, So, yeah, really interesting kind of narrative there that explains that, you know, the screen is not only watching us, 
but while we're watching it. But you know, the void also speaks back, as it were. Uh, it's the the whole. Uh, uh, what is it? Uh, if you stare. <laughs> no, I'm just. Uh, um, Something about uh, monsters, lest you become a monster. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely, absolutely. And that idea of also, separate from the Vinish um, uh, video work, is that this idea that we, we are the avatar, we are the puppets, you know, there's there's no kind of d- distinction um, that there is imposed in the Vinish that we're separate to this, we're kind of excluded or safe from it. We are enacting it and, you know, this is a mirror of self and of popular culture. The exhibition Ace is chatting about is TV More with Love and Squalor, which is on now until the 27th of September at uh, ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art in Sturt Street, Southbank. More info at ackaonline.org.au. Now, Mm. a couple of other shows you wanted to mention. Oh, yeah. So tonight, Simon McEwen has an exhibition opening at Anapapas from 6pm titled The Floating World. Uh, That's 24 Carlton Street, Paran. And uh, Spring 1883 rides again uh, this year in Sydney from September the 9th to the 12th. So if you're in Sydney, please check it out. It's at the establishment. Now, Spring 1883 was uh, a a kind of... An art fair with a difference, because yeah. instead of being in a formal gallery space or mm. the Melbourne Exhibition buildings, it was in a hotel. Yes, it was in the Windsor Hotel, and um, it was kind of a reaction to the Melbourne Art Fair. Um, Melbourne has great DIY kind of uh, pulling together um, artist spaces and uh, and, and just a, a general culture of, of DIY. Uh, so some gallerists saw it upon themselves to start their own art fair. Um, Vicky McIns from Sarah Scout, uh, Vasily Kalaman from Station, and uh, Jeff Newton from Neon Park. Um, and it was a huge success, of course, removing the, the art from the white cube, putting it in this familiar uh, kind of hotel then, zone. Yeah. So now they're doing it in Sydney. What was the hotel? Mm, it is the establishment. Yeah. And, you know, if you can absolutely get along to it, a lot of artists take uh, take the brief really well and, and create a lot of works to be exhibited or to respond to the space. Uh, so, yeah, it's a very exciting, fresh kind of new way of looking at art fairs and what they can be. And I like the inversion uh, mm. of uh, kind of um, more independent artists being suddenly being at the establishment or being the establishment. <laughs> it's, it's a nice kind of piss take of the, I guess, the the construct of the art Absolutely. fair and how it presents art. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And even just the nature of the art fair being such a commercially uh, monetary, monetary driven system. Um, and then you have a lot of, I mean, for the brief, a lot of the artists do produce these really ephemeral works that really only exist for the art fair itself uh, in, in the in the hotel spaces, as opposed to these works that are driven by um, driven by economical means. Um, and also seventh, uh, get along. There's only two days left today and tomorrow. Luke Latournieu, uh is one of the emerging curators selected and his exhibition, Objectifying Elsewhere, a fantastic, s- a small selection of uh, five sculptors and their kind of ephemeral sculptures. Um, and that's down at 7th on Gertrude Street in Fitzroy. Great. Yep. Hey, thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks a lot. Had to burn through that quite quickly. <laughs> <laughs> All good. So uh, we will catch you in a fortnight's time to talk we'll more visual. See, see you then. Bye. Three, triple, ah. And we're going to talk independent theatre now, and we're going to talk Tender Napalm, which is a play by Philip Ridley, which has uh, been praised uh, by The Guardian, uh, who said, seldom has sexual love been explored on stage with, with such a ferocious honesty, brutality and melting 
tenderness. Sounds like an intriguing combination to me. Joining us in the studio to tell us more from TBC Theatre, who are staging this production of Tender Napalm, uh, actor Trudy Boatwright and director Alice Darling. Welcome to you both. Good morning. Hi. So, Trudy, I might start with you, given that you're one of the ensemble members of TBC Theatre. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about the company and what makes them unique in the uh, Melbourne theatrical landscape. Well, this was this is our second year now. Um, this will be our, I think, fourth production that we've put on. And it was a coming together of a group of arts professionals from all different areas, production, performance, writers, directors, um, to form a collaborative and put on some really interesting work. And I think what sets us apart is we have um, a lot of different flavours and a lot of different ensemble members involved. So every production is vastly different. Our last one was very much male kung fu-esque, whereas this one is very much a, a story about love and relationships that is sort of stretched in a, a myriad of ways. Um, so every we try and make every production sort of vastly different. We've done, um, some have had some of our ensemble members do their original works and then we're always trying to sort of move things around. We called TBC because we always like to be confirming things and trying things and, and risking things. So. And inviting guests in to work with you as well. Exactly. Collaboration is what we're all about and we are very lucky to have Alice working with us as a director on Tender Napalm. Um, she does amazing work so we've invited her to come and join us and she has very proudly. So proudly. Alice, what is it about Tender Napalm uh, as, a, as a script, as a, as a, as a play that, you, that made you want to direct it? Well, um, I think basically and, and purely it is just a linguistic playground that Philip Ridley has, has created. Dark, kind of bleakly humorous, but just so word dense and fabulous and surreal that it's impossible to pass it up, really, if you're keen on text. It's pretty amazing. Now, one of the things that intrigues me about uh, the work from what I've read of it, I haven't seen a production of Tender Napalm before, but I've certainly read a few kind of reviews of it, is the fact that it's such an honest look at the decay and death of a relationship. Yes. Often when we see relationships presented, we either see them in the first flush or we, we, we come to them after they've ended rather than kind of that notion of watching a, a relationship or a pair of lovers almost rip themselves apart before our eyes. Absolutely. And I think we've all been in that in that place where it's a very fine line between love and hate. There's a very fine line between all of those things. And so it, this play sort of looks at both, that thing where you love so much to the point of almost to the point where you want to hurt them um, and vice versa. You hurt someone so much because you love them. It's that... And I think everybody's had that moment in their life where they've found themselves in these relationships. It's mm. also like the thing that you the thing that you give someone when you when you love them is the ammunition to to hurt you in just the worst and most brutal ways, which I'm really pretty fascinated by in this play. This play is pretty much solely that. Um, but also the premise is very simple. It's two two people trying to work out whether their love is worth saving. Mm. Okay. Uh, it's in terms of uh, the notion of. I mean, we've we've just made relationships sound really risky and dangerous and, and possibly <laughs> quite frightening. Um, but also, it it I guess it reinforces that uh, underlying the anger there is a great passion as well, and you kind of 
it's in there's the risk in any relationship that passion turns into anger and turns into destruction and that's what philip ridley is exploring in the text of this work mm, these two are bound together by um a moment in their relationship and what that has done to them um internally and externally within that relationship which they then express through this as alice said this beautiful linguistic language this incredible imagery um and and this exploration within that confines of that relationship. Alice, I guess one of the challenges uh, then as director is finding the right actors who can make that chemistry and that passion work. Yeah, that is one of the challenges. And I think the like the really interesting thing about TBC is that they're a kind of they're a ready-made ensemble. So there was this wonderful day where you well, well I got to you know read have them all read for me and you kind of you know have all these versions of the play possibly in front of you and picking two people that kind of embody your what you think might be your version of the play was a really special kind of experience and it's it's come to life in the most extraordinary way and also I've never worked with these two people before so it's also this great this great risk and this you know fabulous thing that we've made together you really have to build this play from the ground up it doesn't give you a lot of sort of facts and context it really is kind of a a playground for you to create. Trudy, you're acting opposite Ben Adams in this production. Yes. Uh, what's it like? Tell us about Ben and what's it like working with him in what must be a, a challenging play to, to leave in the rehearsal room, I'm thinking, in, in terms of the in, the emotional intensity of the work. Very much. And, and really, as Alice said, the play is literally myself and Ben as this couple that go through all this. There's no extravagant props or sets or, you know, it's really very much bare bones emotion um thankfully ben is incredible to work with uh and very different he works very differently to me but i feel like the two differences complement each other different in what way he is a very intelligent man uh and he has these incredible incredible way of working where he thinks things through amazingly he he will pull things apart and his brain works in this incredibly quick in intellectual way um i'm more emotion-based uh, I guess you would say <laughs> so I tend to feel my way th through things whereas he tends to think his way through things and that combination um, creates I believe um, a genuine connection between us because I rely on his thought he relies on a bit of my feeling and then the two of us sort of meet in the middle it's really lovely to have someone that you can look across from and feel completely trusted and safe and secure and I think feel like there is that between us. I just know that he's got me no matter what happens. While he tries to tear you apart. While he tries to tear me apart. <laughs> <laughs> In a variety of ways. <laughs> and I guess, Alice, one of the additional challenges for you then is, given what Trudy was just saying, that this is really just a play about actors and, and words. There's no extravagant set, lighting, music cues to take the focus off that, which in some ways is liberating because it's, it's the bare bones of what theatre is about, people on stage telling stories. But at the same time means that you've probably got to work twice as hard with the actors to get the blocking right, to get the focus right, and to maintain the um, the intensity of the of the drama throughout. That's you you know that you've hit it right on the head. That's exactly what our challenge has been over this kind of this last month, which is you know it's been an incredibly intense rehearsal process, and it was you, there is almost no other way in my mind to do this play except put two actors on stage and kind of make them go on the journey. There is really no need for set up props or music we do you know we have all of those things present but um but the the play really is lives and dies 
in the connection between those two actors and Trudy and Ben go on this incredible journey together and focus and trust and um, connection really are, you know, the lifeblood of this play. If you've just tuned in, we're chatting about a, a play called Tender Napalm by British playwright Philip Ridley, uh, uh, presented by Melbourne independent company TBC Theatre. Uh, it's on at the Good Time Studios in Carlton uh, from today through until the 19th of September, and I'll give the booking details in just a moment. But I'm intrigued, Alice, you, you just talked about the really intense rehearsal process. You guys made it more intense yourselves by opening the rehearsal up to the public at one point as well. Yes. What was the, the rationale behind that? Well, we um, TBC has done a few productions now and we've had a lot of people say, we're so interested in how you put on a play. How What goes on behind the scenes? What happens in a rehearsal room? So we thought, well, let's open it up and allow people to see what happens. As Alice said, we often go to a play and we see the shiny finished product, but what is that journey in the middle? Which can often be a really um, exciting sort of discovery journey that occurs. And also very unshiny and very unfinished, really, right right up until tonight. You know, yes. we were painting things and, you know, sewing things and putting up, you know, random bits of stuff in our venue yesterday. It really is only kind of tonight that things are going to look shiny and polished and the whole picture is going to come together. And I think for me, who kind of in the in the process of working out how how I want to make theatre the more I can see of, of how other people work and the more I understand my own process the better so I mean this was a chance to be sort of transparent and open maybe in the hope that that opportunity exists in other people's rooms for me to come and see so we opened it up. Yeah. And Who came was, along? Was it predominantly friends or was it predominantly other theatre makers? Or Well, that was what was really interesting. We had this huge eclectic mix of people. We had um, art students. Uh, we had professionals who work in the industry who want to come and see how other people work, um, some friends. But then we had things like uh, a, a, tourism, a couple on holiday from Germany who popped along <laughs> and just these sort of random people who just are intrigued by theatre, um, which... What I didn't account for is that that is terrifying as an actor because you suddenly do all these vulnerable things in a rehearsal room and you've got 30 eyes going, mm, mm, sort of, you know, nodding and agreeing with you as you sort of stumble through lines and things. So it was a really interesting experience. Yeah, fascinating process. I'd love to know how the couple from Germany found out about it, but that's a whole different story. Well, they booked tickets. Yeah. Uh, Philip Ridley's Tender Napalm is being presented by TBC Theatre, opening tonight and running through until the 19th of September, Mondays to Sundays at 8pm and a Saturday matinee at 3pm. You can book uh, by going to www.tbctheatre.com or you can buy tickets at the door, the venue being Good Time Studios, 746 Swanston Street, Carlton, um, what's the? Is this the one where you have to walk down an alleyway uh, and down a flight of stairs to find the venue, or am I thinking of a different venue a couple of blocks away? It's actually in the basement of Uni Lodge, so it's just opposite the main uh, tram stop, num stop number one near Melbourne Uni, and you go down the stairs into the basement. There'll, There'll be, be a sign out. Fantastic, easy to find. So, Good Time Studio, seven hundred and forty-six Swanston Street, Carlton, uh, to see Tender Napalm from tonight until the nineteenth of September. More details at tbctheatre.com. I've been chatting with director Alice Darling and actor Trudy Boatwright. Thank you both for joining us here at Triple R. Thank, Thank you. Free Triple R. My next guest joins me in the studio now. Adrian Truscott is one half of the Val Val Sisters. Um, she is a physical performer, a comedian, and 
She's in Melbourne for uh, a very brief flying visit to Restage for one night only. Her acclaimed one-woman show, Asking For It, a one-lady rape about comedy starring her pussy and little else. Hello, Adrian. How are you? Hello, Richard. Nice to be back. Nice to see you again. <laughs> so, well, you originally presented this show in Melbourne at the 2014 Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Yes. Where I had the, the great pleasure of seeing it. Mm. Um, and you've since been travelling and touring. Uh, mm-hmm. You've just come back from Edinburgh, I believe. Yes. Doing a different show. Yes. What was that one? Um, that one, that show is called Adrian Truscott's A One Trick Pony, which is a pretty cheeky follow-up to the dreaded, like, oh, God, what do you do for your second album if you, you know, had some success your first time out? So that's been uh, fun. Yeah. Good. Now, this show in itself, as we, as it, you've just uh, kind of intimated, was your first kind of stand-up comedy show. Yeah. You're not by by practice, practice and training a stand-up comedian, but nonetheless, yeah. this is a, a very funny show, but also a very angry and very sharp and intelligent show as well. Why did you... Let's, let's backtrack. Why did you write Asking For It, a one-lady rape about comedy starring her <laughs> pussy and little else? <laughs> Thank you for using the whole title. Um, I was writing it because I think um, I just was really frustrated by how limited and I felt unintelligent and lazy so much of the sort of rhetorical conversation about rape and legislation was and at the time even um advocacy groups uh, uh, for rape prevention were still sort of putting a lot of stuff on the victim somehow or um so i was i just wanted to say things that i wasn't hearing and i wanted to say them loudly and i think i um though I'm happy to sort of stomp my foot and and shake my fist in some scenarios, I thought that even though they don't make sort of obvious bedfellows, if I could talk about this heavy material in a way that was sort of slyly lighthearted, it might be a better, it might land, it might land with people differently and they might hear it more clearly. Now, one of the things that anybody who sees a lot of comedy or is familiar with the comedy world knows that sooner or later some doofus male comedian is going to tell a rape joke in a way that kicks down rather than kicks up, that yeah. that kind of uh, blames a rape survivor rather than blaming the rapist themselves. And it's kind of like, guys, learn to keep your dicks in your pants. That's <laughs> The, that's the, the issue here. It's not what somebody's wearing or what, yeah. where they're walking or what time at night. Um, but so this show is in many is an antidote towards mm. that style of comedy and a, a, a very, as I've said, a very angry but a very funny antidote to that style of comedy as well. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, that it, it's funny because initially I think there's there's been quite a sea change in how people are talking about rape in a lot of ways these days um but uh at the time it just felt like um if you mentioned that you were going to do jokes about rape it it was uh, there was such a knee-jerk knee-jerk reaction that that was horrible and offensive and even that fact was surprising that you couldn't even imagine that you could be satirical about all the bullshit around it like you know we've got some of the most unintelligent idiotic people in office in my country making legislation. I know you guys might be catching up. You might be nipping at our heels lately. <laughs> um, 
you know, and, and that was sort of funny to me. I was like, there's so much satire involved around the behaviors around that, that it seemed really ripe for comedy for me. And certainly, I mean, some of the, the most out landish and crazy statements being made by American politicians, such as the claim that oh, uh, if a if a woman is raped, her body has a natural way of shutting down. So That's if she one, if she gets it? pregnant, kind of like it it kind of been a real rape. Kind of the fact that people are saying that and clearly possibly believing it I is know. just gobsmacking. Yeah, and and that it's really like. You know, weird, straight, white men in American politics have been saying idiotic things like that for so long that it's not even that shocking to some people that a grown man would think that a that's how a female body works. Like, I just think, my God, like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give them the responsibility of, like, feeding my old cat, let alone legislating law. You know, it's just, oh, yeah. Now, in terms of making this show, one of the things that you've chosen to do is you quite literally, at points in the show, use your body as a canvas. Mm. Uh, uh, images are projected on you. Um, and you, so it's very much about putting your body on the line, uh, so to speak. Um, talk to us about that decision to use your physicality and your performance skills as part of the show beyond just uh, telling jokes and doing stand-up. Yeah, I think that just sort of comes second nature, that I, uh, you know, connect language and performance and physicality automatically. Um, you know, my sort of now infamous costume choice of not wearing pants um, is, I think, very relevant to this notion of asking for it. Like, that's the, you know, an outfit taken to its extreme in terms of so-called availability or vulnerability. Um, so the fact that nothing happens to me every night seems to me to indicate that that's actually not what it takes. It takes a rapist, not an outfit. Um, and and also, I just I had this cheeky idea to project videos on my body and sort of rearrange what how you see my body on stage and rearrange like what you hear a man say if it's sort of presented on my body it shifts it a little bit i guess i i, I never want to give it away yeah, <laughs> but... i don't want to give it away either i want people to go and see the show which is uh, on for one night only at howler in dawson street brunswick tomorrow night at 7 30 p.m you can book through moshticks.moshticks.com.au now adrian you first presented the show at the edinburgh french in 2013 mm. um so we saw it then in melbourne last year um how has it tightened and tweaked and changed over that time um, I'm happy to say I think I'm getting to be a much better stand-up. I think when I started out, I wasn't sure if I was doing it or acting like a person doing stand-up. But I've been doing lots of spots now, and they still terrify me a bit, but I really love it. So I think I'm actually slightly, I think I'm more comfortable and natural at the craft of in the form of stand-up. But also, you know, lucky for me in terms of bookings, but horrible in other regards, this show keeps updating itself. Like, I really thought it was very, I, I understood it was very topical and a sort of zeitgeisty conversation at the time that I debuted it, which is when I, why I debuted it then. And then I just thought, you know, I'll go, maybe if this, if this works out, I'll go for six months, maybe a year. Um, so, to my delight and to my horror, two years later, the show's updating just with Chrissy Hine this week, or Bill Cosby, or, you know, uh, the Mel, I think it was a Melbourne police official saying women shouldn't walk in parks alone, which seems yeah. like it's something we've been doing for 
De- centuries, I dare say. And, and not stopping sexual assaults from happening. Not at so all. Maybe we should stop the men from walking in parks and I, on streets. I know, right? Yeah. It's yeah. never occurred to them how ridiculous that would be. Yeah. Now, one of the other things that I think it's important to stress about this show is while the there is a lot of Um, there's a lot of issues that you are unpacking in this show, but this isn't about you haranguing or the audience. This is a very, very funny night of comedy as well. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was really clear to me from the start that um, it needed to be as light on its feet and inviting, and I I am, and I really do want people um, from all walks of life to feel really comfortable um, coming to the show, and I don't judge their reasons for coming, whether they're, you know, political, comedic, prurient, or all three. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, the show has been getting rave reviews from around the world. I happily gave it four stars in The Age. Thank the Scotsman you. has given it four stars. Uh, Broadway Baby gave it four stars. The Guardian gave it five stars. So, um, it's not just me who's talking it up it's critics from around the world so you're doing one night only at howler in brunswick tomorrow night yes then i know you're going up to brisbane for the uh the, the kind of independent aspect of the brisbane festival program mm. uh so that's theatre republic uh yeah in and around La Boite uh, in Brisbane, mm. um, and going up to the Opera House in between. Yes, um, to do the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. It's very exciting in the big hall. So on a, uh, are you performing the show? Are you doing a panel? Or I'm not. Um, sort of in connection with the show, I'm doing um, a talk and an episode of The Moth. podcast so yes it's very exciting so if you're streaming this show from sydney you get to catch up with adrian truscott there if you're in brisbane check out the brisbane festival program and if you're here in melbourne adrian truscott's asking for it a one lady rape about comedy starring her pussy and little else is on tomorrow night 7 30 p.m at howler uh, which is at number seven dawson street brunswick you can book at moshticks.com.au and i recommend you do because there may not be tickets at the door if it's uh if it's as well, it's a, it's a, it's a one-show only, so yeah. Uh, yeah. So you could risk turning up at Howler tomorrow night at 7.30, or you could book online, moshticks.com.au. And Adrian has very kindly uh, given us a double pass to give away. So if you're a Triple R subscriber, give us a call right now, 93881027. You should like to win a double pass to Adrian's show tomorrow night, 7.30 at Howler. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Richard. You're an angel. Ah, you said the sweetest thing. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. We've talked theatre, we've talked visual art, we've talked solo performance and comedy, and uh, we've talked more theatre, but right now we're going to talk exploratory music. Mm, What does that mean? Well, the Bendigo International... Festival of Exploratory Music is on from the 4th until the 6th of September, now in its third year. Joining us in the studio to tell us more is conductor, singer, pianist and composer Eric Dudley, who is the guest conductor at the festival this year. Eric, good morning. Good morning, Richard. So what do we mean by exploratory music? Is this just an easier way of saying contemporary composition influenced by classical composers that may or may not be um, electronic and engaging in other forms? Right, yeah. I mean, I think it may be a, a sort of an easier way of saying that, but I mean, to me, actually all music is exploratory at some point. So I think what David is trying to create here is a festival in which in a kind of an isolated time frame, we can witness 
many, many different takes on what music of today might be. And I think those takes have to do a lot with modern technologies. There's a considerable amount of electroacoustic offerings. Um, there are takes that have to do with many different styles and approaches of writing music that we could say is influenced by more Western classical tradition today. Um, and where, where are the jumping off points for that? So I think it's a, it's a very diverse festival in terms of the, the actual offerings. And anyone who is game to be there over the course of the three days is going to receive a really broad-ranging experience of what it means to be writing and listening to music now. Now, you've just mentioned David. That's David Chisholm, uh, an Australian composer whose work people may have heard at uh, the Malthouse Theatre, for example, as uh, accompanying as uh, when he's been an artist in residence there making work for some of the theatre productions at the Malthouse. He established the uh, Bendigo International Festival of Exploratory Music, or uh, BIFM. Uh, this is now its third year. Yeah. Yes. That it's been running. Um, now, and some people will have, I know, have questioned why Bendigo? Um, and it's, a, I guess, a question that I might get you to, to answer, Eric, because, I mean, you're from uh, the US. Right. Uh, and the notion of coming across to Australia to go to a festival that's not in a capital city, but in a regional centre. When you first heard about it, were you surprised at all? Or did you th think that, no, a smaller regional city makes the perfect place for a festival like this? Uh, well, yes, in short, I, th I think it's actually a wonderful place to have a festival like this. I, I was surprised only because I'm not familiar with the locale myself. You know, I, I've come down to Melbourne, I guess this is my third trip down. Um, but, uh, David and I have, you know, just been constantly in touch over the past several years. I'm a great admirer of his music. And when he told me that he was setting up this festival in Bendigo, I had no doubt whatsoever that it would end up being something great. Um, the way he described it to me was that... Uh, that Bendigo as a as a city is a very very cultural town had a, a whole bunch of support from within the community for a festival like this and knowing uh, David and his his wonderful talent for organizing things and and bringing people together for a, a kind of common vision I had no doubt that he would be able to produce something like this in that community so it's a real joy to kind of be here for the third season of it now you're the principal conductor for the festival which means mm -hmm. there's a fair bit of responsibility on your shoulders I imagine because the festival features everything from large ensembles to, to, to small groups and solo artists. So the focus uh, on you then, uh, tell us, to begin with, how you got involved in, in conducting? Because I think a lot of children may watch a, a concert and see somebody down the front waving their hands around or waving a stick around and wonder who they are and how they got there and what they're actually doing. So, right. Why is, why is that person doing that? <laughs> yeah. Tell us a little, bit, a, a little bit about your kind of personal and musical journey to become a conductor. Yeah. Well, I, I started off as a, a pianist primarily. You know, when I was a toddler, I started fooling around and, and taking lessons on the piano. And that grew into just kind of an overall interest in, I started writing a little bit of music, um, started singing, and then eventually kind of stitching those things together in a, in a more broad-based approach to, well, what does it mean to be a musician? I guess in the end, I just became fascinated by every facet of music making. And to me, that, that that's what a conductor is primarily concerned with. You're concerned with how all of the different pieces fit together. Um, and so eventually I, I went down that track, studied conducting in the States, and uh, primarily I, I now conduct a lot of new music. 
because it's my my own background as a composer and my own interest in new music has has caused me to be most interested in those kinds of projects. Now, it, I would imagine that perhaps one of the challenges of conducting new music is that you don't necessarily have any great recordings of the music to refer to. There might be, for example, if you're conducting Wagner or Beethoven or or any of the the, the huge canon of of uh, classical uh, composition, that there are certain great key recordings that have got the depth and the tone and that you aspire to when you're, when you're conducting new work. Tell us about the challenges that you face then in in making the work the best it can be without necessarily having something else to refer to. Well, that's actually one of the things I like about it, is there is no precedent. And you're creating something for the first time, and, and it takes a lot of, first of all, it takes a lot of imagination and, and, and creativity to, to kind of tackle some of these more complex scores um, and you have no point of reference um, now with one of the works on the on the festival on Saturday night we're performing Pierre Boulez sur Ancis and that piece there are a few very fine recordings that are out there and I you know, of course, have listened to them because you do want, if there is that point of reference, to at least get a little bit of bearing. But the thing about that score and about so much new music is that it really requires you just sitting and and methodically studying the score and trying to crack its code. Um, it's written in such a way that that Boulez also, as a conductor himself, uses very specific ways of notating the music um, and achieving different results at different times. And so to me, that's part of the excitement. It's just like you, you see this score that just visually looks very different from much else that you've seen in the canon. And you're then confronted with this kind of enjoyable puzzle of being like, well, how do, how do we work these things out and how do we coordinate them for, with real people and make real music? And, and how do you emphasize particular aspects of the orchestra? or particular musicians and their instruments to, to draw them out, to, to emphasise, to, to, to a greater or lesser degree, the, the, the piece as it's being played. Exactly. And one of the things about the, actually both pieces that I'm conducting, the, the Boulez and also Olga Neuwirth's um, Maudit Soit la Guerre on Friday evening, one of the things about these two pieces is that they both require a great deal of virtuosity on the part of the players. And so as a conductor, it, it's one of those very interesting things where you come into a situation and, and you sort of wonder, you say like, well, I know how this looks on the page and I know how difficult it's going to be to execute. So what's it going to be like, you know, these musicians that I'm going to be working with. And, you know, so one of the reasons that I, I'm so happy about this festival and, and why I have such trust and, and admiration for, for David Chisholm is, you know, he has this great lightning rod ability to attract all these wonderful musicians that just have that, that talent level. So these very much are are those musicians where I, I felt that I could come here and I knew, and it's been very much confirmed in rehearsal over the last few days, that they all individually are bringing great virtuosity and, and imagination to the music. How many musicians are we talking about with the two different works that you're conducting? There's actually nine in each, but in very different configurations. In, in Boulez, there are three pianists, three harpists, and three percussionists. So that produces a very interesting world of sound color. Um, and then... For uh, Olga Neuwirth's piece, we have very wide-ranging instrumentation from the kind of percussion battery with lots of different effectual things to string players that are also asked to play um, uh, Almglocken, which are the, the cowbells, you know? Um, and then there are there's an electric guitar, there's an electric... Uh, keyboard with samples and all that kind of a thing there are other electronic samples that go 
as along with the film track over the music there are brass instruments there's a clarinet so it's a very you know varied sound world very much so now as well as conducting these works what else will you be doing in bendigo while you're there will you just be then immersing yourself in every other aspect of the festival you're running any workshops for example or are you just going to be going out and listening to to as much as you can I'll be doing that. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I have no other responsibilities aside from the conducting of the pieces. So for me, it's, it's going to be an experience of getting to enjoy these other performances and see how the entire festival stitches together. And there are also, there are performers on the festival with whom I've worked in the past. So it will be a real joy to see, you know, for example, their, their solo recitals and and other participants in the festival, yeah. The Bendigo International Festival of Exploratory Music is on from tomorrow, the 4th until the 6th of September uh, at various venues in Bendigo, including the new Alumbra Theatre, which is a gorgeous theatre space. For more information, you can go to www.bifem.com.au. That's www.bifem.com.au. If you fancy a trip up to Bendigo or if you're already living up in Bendigo, or in the vicinity if you'd like to check out some of the performances that are on this weekend. Eric Dudley, thank you very much for joining us here at Triple R. Thank you. Three Triple R. Now, we've talked a little bit already on the show this morning about visual art. Uh, Ace Wagstaff joined us this morning to review a show that's currently on at ACCA. But now we're going to find out about an exhibition that's on at Beringer, uh, which is in Upway. And it's an exhibition called Black Art, White Walls, the Adrian and Anne Newstead Collection. Uh, we're joined by J.D. Mitman from Beringer, who is uh, curating the, the show. And J.D., thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So, in terms of this exhibition, uh, as the title suggests, it's drawing from an extensive personal collection of Indigenous art uh, accumulated over, what, I believe, 20 or 30 years. Yeah, quite a bit more than that, really, because um, <clears throat> it's fair to say that Adrian Newstead was probably, you know, the front man of um, the Aboriginal art movement, if you like, uh, first man in the right place at the right time. Um, who, um, after his um, studies, opened a little arts and craft shop, um, which he called an emporium um, in Sydney. Um, and some of the um, content and uh, product that you would sell there um, what was early Aboriginal art. So, of course, that was all before, well before, um, you know, Aboriginal art has grown to um, the kind of quality and broad um, appeal that um, as we know it now um, but there were the inklings so it's fair to say it's been around for 40 years and um, in quite central positions and certainly over those 40 years we've seen uh, contemporary Aboriginal art become internationally recognised and internationally collected but the fact that this collection started back in the 80s would mean I, I would imagine that there are some kind of quite rare and significant examples of, of early work that were being collected before before anyone else had the chance to snap them up. Um, absolutely. Um, Adrian Newstead is the director of Kui um, Art Gallery in Bondi in, in Sydney, and he started the gallery in 1981. So um, at a time um, when the market had not really quite um, full, fully developed, and in, in, in some ways, of course, in those days, and, and it's fair to say probably now, um, 
much of the dealership um, works through the relationships that you have with the artists. Um, if you get close with the artists, of course, um, and have special relationships, you have special access to certain certain works. And he, he's maintained some of the relationships across the country for quite some some time. So um, through, of course, his work with the artists directly and through um, the gallery, he had obviously access to um, some very um, special works. Can you give us some examples of those works? Yeah, um, um, when you come to the exhibition, you will notice that there's um, uh, quite a number of prints in the exhibition, which is rather unusual for um, Aboriginal art, um, mostly when you go through the larger collections, say at the um, state institutions or the commercial galleries. What you usually will find is other um, works on canvas, you know, for those that come, say, what we call the Western Desert Art Movement from the from Central Australia, or they're usually on bark um, if they come from the top end. Um, now, in this case, um, Adrian set out to work with some artists on on um, paper and um, screen printing um, process. So there's, for example, a fabulous um, Rover Thomas um, print there that um, depicts the universe. It's it's, um, it's quite intriguing because it's a very minimal piece, uh, essentially. Um, there's just a number of dots in a square um, on, a, on a black background. Um, a very significant work because all the works in the exhibition as all Aboriginal work always is. It's very connected to country, to their stories, the traditions. Um, they're an expression of their knowledge. Um, so often it's not only what you see, but it's also you know what's in the picture. Would it be fair to say that as an appreciation of Aboriginal art has grown, uh, that awareness of uh, Indigenous art and the meaning behind the artworks has it perhaps helped foster a stronger connection between black and white Australia. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. No, there's no doubt about that. Um, artwork has Aboriginal art has become a vehicle um, for for many people to mainstream Australia to kind of access um, Aboriginal culture, um, find an interest in that, kind of learn about culture, um, and often, of course, the stories of uh, um, Aboriginal people are reflected in their works you know the, the stories of uh, first settlement of massacres um, um, you know the removal from country or the devastation of country through mining and other, other um, impacts that white Europeans um, had here so the story continues and um, of course um, artwork is a sort of accessible um, vehicle at the same time now um Tell us about your introduction to Aboriginal art and how you how you were exposed to, to Aboriginal artworks and and when you developed an interest in them because you're I believe a stencil artist. Uh, no, no, I'm not an, an, a stencil artist, but some people know me as the person who kind of um, did the stencil festival for a number of years. So um, I always had an interest in in Aboriginal art ever um, uh, since my first travels through Australia in the early 1990s and crossing the country and crossing the deserts and. Um, learning about Aboriginal um, culture is quite fascinating when you come from Europe. I mean, you know, there's uh, here an existing um, 
um, uh, culture that um, that you know, is, goes as far back as 60,000 years in the country, longest surviving indigenous culture in the world. So, um, so there was always a fascination, but at the same time, sort of when you see this from the outset and you travel through the communities, it strikes you um, that there's obviously um, um, something afoot in, in the sense that it's not the same kind of um, quality of lifestyle um, that indigenous people have in this country, certainly in the regional and remote areas, um, uh, and that there are certain complexities and problems attached to that. So, um, in some ways, getting interested in that, I also discovered the art, and um, it, it is difficult not to be intrigued by um, by the colorfulness, the diversity, um, you know, the, the abstract playfulness that appeals also to a, to a Euro European aesthetic. Now, to come back specifically to the exhibition Black Art, White Walls, uh, the Adrian and Anne Newstead Indigenous Art Collection, uh, which is on show at uh, Beringer Gallery in Upway until the 20th of September, so people have still got a few weeks to get along. Um, when you're kind of, as the, I guess, the resident curator, uh, do you grow attached to these works? Is it difficult to to let them go at the end of an exhibition? Um, yeah, sometimes that's the case. Yeah, um, certainly is um, because you also um, you work closely with an exhibition, even if it's a touring exhibition that comes in like this, because you know your space and you, you try to tell the story by the way you hang an exhibition. So um, if people would visit this exhibition at another space, they they might feel different about it or I might have a different impact on them so and there's always standout works that really you fall in love with or that intrigue you one way or the other and that um, you'd like going back to and you know look at in the gallery what are those works in this particular exhibition the ones that you're most intrigued by or return to um, there's some fabulous works um, uh, from Central Australia from a community called Belgo um, uh, that's uh, towards um, um, the end of the tenement my track uh, across the um, border to Western Australia, um, who, uh, which are very rich in detail, um, so and and quite um, uh, quite diverse in their color range. So you, you you can sense the density of story and and um, the layers of of, of meaning in, in the work without. Uh, knowing anything in specific um, about it, um, so there, there's um, uh, uh, several of those works where where you, where you can quasi feel the depthness that that is um, involved in these canvases. So. The exhibition is on, as I said, uh, at uh, Beringia, which is the uh, cultural centre uh, located at uh, the corner of uh, Glenfern Road and Matson Drive in Upway um, and is on until the 20th of September uh, in the gallery there. The hours are Tuesdays to Sundays from 10am till 4pm and you can find out more information at www.beringa, which is B-U-R-R-I-N-J-A, beringa.org.au. J.D. Mittman, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Richard. Three triple R. Right now, I'm joined by Claire Watson from St. Martin's, who uh, joins us to chat about the latest work by the company. I saw the second one hit 
Hello, Claire. Hi, Richard. How are you going? Really well, thank you. Good. Nice to see you again. And you. Now, you've been rather busy this year, kind of working with St Martin's, creating Mm -hmm. work by young people for adult audiences. You've also been directing at the MTC, getting Helpman Award nominations, all this kind of stuff. It's been a a bit of, what do they call it, a purple patch. Yeah, we've actually got, so the, the show that we're talking about today previews tonight but we've also got an opening like in an, in two hours at Launceston for the Junction Arts Festival and by fam on the weekend so yeah it's been a, a kind of wonderfully hectic year sounds like it what's the show that you um, that's going down to Junction uh, Fitter Faster Better that, oh. you, that you yourself starred in I did I don't know start is a, is a fairly elastic word uh, I certainly participated in, in it and with great joy so I'm, I'm glad that's going down to Junction which is yeah. for people who don't know Junction Arts Festival is a festival in Launceston, Tasmania very much focused on live art and participatory performance and work in non-traditional uh, performance spaces it's a fan- I've never actually been down myself but I keep reading about it and interviewing people involved with it and it sounds like a great little festival yeah. Yeah, and, and we're working with a group of kids who are 20 minutes outside of Launceston in a tiny little place called Perth. So it's a pretty amazing experience for them. Fantastic. Mm. Well, look, let's talk about I Saw the Second One sure. Hit, um, which is, uh, again, uh, an intriguing performance exploring uh, dynamics between young people and adults and, in this instance, also exploring relationships between uh, Australia and the USA. Yeah, uh, and, and I it, guess making a link between those adult and ch- child relationships and maybe our cultural relationship with America. Yeah. Mm. So I saw the second one hit is about uh, the events of September 11, 2001, mm-hmm. 9-11, as the Americans call it, mm-hmm. uh, and the uh, the attacks on the World Trade Centre, but told from the perspective of, uh, of a pair of twins who were born on that day, I understand. Yeah, so the, the, the premise of the work is that um, these identical twins, Maddie and Juliet, were born on that day um and i I was just really interested i the the day itself or i should say the the next day um i was in a high school and i was talking to kids who were 13 14 years old um and you might remember at that time there were all of these kind of catastrophe movies happening and so i think we were really culturally prepped for 9-11 to feel like it was going to be the end of everything and talking with these kids, that's how they felt on that day. And that's not exactly how things took place, particularly in Australia. I think if you talk to an Iraqi or an Afghani, that would be a very different story. But here in Australia, the changes weren't as dynamic as perhaps we had expected. Um, but they have been insidious. And I guess what I was really interested in doing was talking to people who were born on that day, who were now the age of the kids that I had been talking to on that day, to, th- to have a chat with them about what their perspectives were on security and power and privacy. So that was the beginning of the investigation of the work. I was going to talk to all of these kids, which I began the process of, and then I met Maddie and Juliet. And there's something about the dynamic of twins, a sort of sibling relationship that I found really fascinating and kind of metaphorically demonstrated so many of the things that I was interested in exploring with them. Uh, so that's, yeah, that's how it all came about. And the notion of twins is particularly pertinent given that twins, twin towers, um, there's, and there's so many fascinating parallels in this work. Yeah, and we've, uh, I guess we're sort of drawing on all of those, all the sort of metaphors that we're also looking at um, another pair of twins, Romulus and Remus, who so the founders of Rome, the founders of Rome, absolutely. So the idea that you know this 
This pair of twins began Western civilization, and now we're watching another pair of twins who sort of came into the world at what we imagined may be the end of Western civilization. So we're sort of drawing those parallels and working with their mirror twins, which I find really fascinating. So one of them's right-handed, one of them's left-handed. So we're really kind of playing with this idea of kind of mirrored worlds and mirrored realities, and um, and I guess. It's a coming-of-age story and we're looking at this kind of hopeful version of reality where none of these things happened, where we followed the kind of mirrored path. The notion of putting teenagers on stage is certainly... Uh, has become theatre goers have become more used to the to this notion. Oh, the Belgians have been doing it for ages. ages yeah. yeah, and Australia has certainly been catching up over yeah. the last couple of years, partially because of you and your work at St Martin's. Um, nonetheless, to you're asking uh, young adults, um, people on the cusp of adolescence, children, mm. to talk about some quite heavy themes at times. So to talk to us about, uh, as a theatre maker, your mm. duty of care towards these people and how you work with them to. Um, not necessarily insulate them from mm. the world because we you don't want to wrap kids in cotton wool and bubble mm. wrap and uh, you want them to, to be able to grow and live and thrive and to be exposed. Well, to, to and I think things. they are exposed. I think that's the thing. I think we we sort of talk about children will inherit the earth, but actually they inhabit it with us and they're well aware of what kind of um, political state we're in, what kind of cultural state we're in. So in some ways um, getting them to reflect that back to us can be really interesting. We we have this um, kind of philosophy at St Martin's that adults have a lot to answer for and children ask the best questions. So we're, we're really not trying to... Um fill young minds or or you know put words in their mouth at all what we're trying to do is reflect uh back to our adult audiences the perspectives that these kids and teenagers already have so instead of um when you just said that phrase we're not putting words in their mouth what you're actually doing is putting their words in the ears of adults and and making the adults listen yeah and i think the there's a really beautiful transaction that occurs when that happens because there's there's a bit of you as an adult audience member who is you know is, is a bit apparent is a bit a carer and wants to look after these young people on stage but also there's another lovely bit of the transaction that occurs where you think of yourself at that age and you can't help but think of who you were then and how you might have spoken to an audience. Now, one of the elements of I Saw the Second One Hit, it's not just about um, these uh, this pair of twins, their stories, relationships with the USA and Australia and so on. There's also um, some kind of cheerleader routine? Well, the Maddie and Juliet um, have been doing calisthenics since they were three. And I don't know if you're familiar with calisthenics. I wasn't particularly familiar with calisthenics, I have to say, but it is the most extraordinarily rigorous um, kind of form of dance. It's like an athletics, aerobics, dance fusion. They'd probably hate it that I called it that. But it's it's extraordinary. So so we, do, we have been working with um, a woman called... Brooke, who happened to be um, a solo winner of a competition called The Graceful Girl in 2001, which is just a nice nice um, little piece of symmetry as well. So she's um, worked on 
a routine, a club's routine with these girls. But there are there are a number of different layers. Like there's a lot of, in terms of the performance work, there's quite a bit of movement as well as this calisthenics. Um, there's direct address to the audience. There's a pretty extraordinary sound design um, by Russell Goldsmith who has taken bits and pieces from uh, YouTube, you know, Congress addresses from Bush and turned it into this like kind of incredible sound mosaic um, that I find very affecting. It's kind of epic. Now, how aware were Juliet and Madeline of the events of uh, 9-11? Given that that's mm. something that happened when they were born rather than just something that, I mean, I remember being at a pub and kind of watching this unfolding on TV, seeing the second plane hit and then going mm. home and just gathering with friends, genuinely thinking that this could be the end of the world. Yeah, so, we all did. Yeah, yeah. so... But for for young people born on the day or born thereafter, they Mm. have a very different interpretation and even a a different understanding of what happened. The thing that I found really fascinating is that they haven't known as much about it as maybe I had anticipated they would. So they spoke to me about, say, the bombing in New York, Um, whereas they do have a keen awareness of terrorism and the potential threat of terrorism. So they've definitely been influenced by, you know, television but also politics um, with this sense of the danger of the other um, and uh, and the fact that in Australia we may not be safe. And I think that's been a constant message. Even, even things that, I mean, they call it the theatre of security, even things like... Um, having to take your shoes off at the airport or or handing in your water bottle at the airport. These are things that, while they're meant to be making us safe, they actually just remind us that maybe we're not. And they've definitely been influenced by that, even though they haven't necessarily had this sense of um, where the stepping off point was. Yeah. Yeah. So the work is I saw the second one hit, uh, presented by St Martin's, who uh, you're the company in residence um, at, at Malthouse at, at the, the Malt moment. House. Yeah. 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 Um, which is one of the reasons I had Matt Lutton from the Malthouse on the, at the start of the show, and uh, we talked about a work that St Martin's will be doing next year at the Malthouse, which I'll probably have to get you back to talk about, which is about teenage boys and porn called Gonzo. Yeah, it's pretty exciting and terrifying in equal measure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine. But so I saw the second one hit. Uh, is on from tomorrow uh, at uh, the Cooper's Malthouse in the Tower Theatre. Uh, the Malthouse is at 113 Sturt Street, South Bank. Um, shows are at 7pm, uh, uh, running through until the 12th of September with 4pm matinees. I do love a good matinee. Um, uh, and you can book online at malthousetheatre.com.au. We've been chatting with Claire Watson. Claire, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Richard. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. My final guest for the morning joins us on the line now. Kate McIntosh is performing in a work called All Ears at Arts House uh, at the North Melbourne Town Hall. Kate, good morning. Good morning. Now, this is a work that intrigues me, given that it's got such a really strong sonic aspect. Tell us a little bit more about kind of creating a, uh, I guess, a performance work for audiences in which sound plays such a significant part. Yeah, well, um, that was the main investigation of uh, making the piece. And um, in fact, it started with a kind of fantasy. Um, I was making a solo piece and I wanted to um, think about how to involve the audience uh, more in actually making the piece because I was feeling a bit lonely uh, on stage by myself. 
So I started to think about how, in fact, an audience sitting in a seating bank is actually a little bit like an orchestra or a, or a choir, you know, just the, the spatial um, arrangement. And so I started to think about how I could involve the audience in making sound also during the performance as a way to be engaged and also to be listening in a very different way to what's happening in the space. So that was the, the starting point, yeah. Now, I've certainly sat in some noisy audiences in my time, whether in flu season when everyone's coughing and snuffling and sniffling yeah. or rustling as they uh, they open pack throat lozenges or even just moving yeah. in their seats. But I get the feeling that's yeah. not the kind of sound we're talking about here. <laughs> yeah, that also does get involved. But um, no, there's um, the first part of the performance is, is me speaking very directly with the audience and I'm exploring a lot. I'm asking a lot of questions to the audience actually about themselves and who they are and so on. And I ask people to make responses just by raising their hands to declare themselves. So, um, you know, I'm one of the slowest people to get involved when there is participation when I'm in the audience. I'm naturally very cautious about that. So I wanted to make um, a kind of exchange and involvement with the audience that even I would be comfortable and interested in if I was in the audience. And then this slowly evolves into some um, proposals for ways that people can uh, start making sounds together. And uh, then, in fact, it, it is a kind of stage invasion. I mean, the, the audience stay in their seats. They, they don't have to move. Um, but there are some strings that are attached to the furniture on stage. And this, the audience start to move. And this is a sonic landscape as well, because there's quite a few microphones in the space that are picking up um, movement of things and smashings of things and rolling and so on. So uh, the objects themselves start to become instruments, which the audience has quite a lot of control over. And um, beyond this, there's also some other parts of the performance where we really just go into a listening mode. There's a blackout at a certain point where we get to hear uh, things really in the darkness. So there's a lot of sensitivity around the ears, but also there's quite a social aspect to it about how people want to get involved or some people just prefer to, to watch and, and stay quiet. And it's, there's a few different dynamics happening. I find it fascinating that you yourself don't like audience participation, mm. but you've made a work which is so reliant on on audience participation. Yeah. I mean, and certainly I've uh, I can understand the the hesitation around being an, mm. an engaged part of the audience because I've seen shows where comedians, for example, have pulled audience mm. members up on stage and and essentially humiliated them in order to I to know, make yeah. a laugh. So I can see sure. why you'd be hesitant. So tell us about how you forcing. Did you have to force yourself to over? Come, uh, this kind of resentment around audience participation to make this work. Well, I think I, I think people have a pretty clear understanding of when uh, borders are being crossed and so on. So, if you're being humiliated, then I mean everyone can see it. And in fact, it's a very aggressive kind of participation. Um, and I think this is very clear. And it's the kind of participation that often makes me very angry if I am in the audience. So, I started to think about when when do I have a kind of pleasure actually? Because I. Anyway, uh, even a so-called normal audience that sits there quietly together, they do participate even by being quiet or by laughing together or, um, you know, there's a lot of quite subtle communication that happens between groups of people in theatres anyway. So I wanted just to see if I could slowly um, amplify that and make that more sensitive. And uh, I also, it was very clear that I didn't want the person on stage to have a massive power position, which is what happens with those comedians that uh, drag people on stage. They're just kind of exhibiting a, a power display. 
So I, I really try to think about it more as a communal um, activity and also that um, definitely it was important to me that you could refuse, you know, that it was definitely not uh, obligatory to get involved and that this would be really fine if you just want to sit there quietly. This is no problem and it doesn't um, interrupt things. So there's always this nice, I hope it's a nice feeling of choice that if you want to get involved or not. And some people love it, you know, like this is um, a great thing too. It can be very uh, fun. Uh, and many people don't, they're not hesitant at all, which I find very beautiful. The work is called All Ears and is on from tonight until Sunday, so from the 3rd to the 6th of September, uh, nightly at 7.30pm and Sunday's a 5pm performance. Runs for one hour and 15 minutes and it's on at Arts House, North Melbourne Town Hall. It's called All Ears by Kate McIntosh. If you would like to book, artshouse.com.au or you can call 9322-3713. Kate, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you. And I'll catch you next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.